This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards. If you're looking to unload your collection and maybe turn some of that old cardboard into cash, Greg Morris can help. Greg's always buying collections of vintage basketball, baseball, football, or hockey cards. And if you have modern or ultra-modern graded cards, he'll buy those as well. On top of all that, Greg takes cards on consignment. Go to gregmorriscards.com to sell them your cards, or you can email joe at gregmorriscards.com directly. What's up, everyone? This is episode 134 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, uh, thank you all for tuning in today. I want you to know I, I really appreciate it. I know everyone's busy between work life and home life, and everything else. Time is a precious commodity. You've chosen to spend some of yours with me. I don't ever want to take that for granted. And with that being said, today's main segment is going to take quite a bit of time, so I'm going to jump right in. The outline for today's show is pretty simple. I'm going to start off by talking about a couple things I received in the mail this week. And then for today's main segment, I'm going to recap the Rick Probstein and Bill Mastro conversation that took place this past week on Instagram Live. felt like there were a lot of gaps of the conversation that needed to be filled in, especially for people that might have just entered or re-entered the hobby in the last couple of years. I'm going to try and fill those things in for you, so you want to make sure to stay tuned for that. Okay, so let's start with some mail. Um, I didn't get very much basketball stuff in this week, so this segment isn't going to be too long If you are interested in some of the other stuff I got, including a really cool JFK card from Goodwin Champions, you can check out a pair of videos I made for my YouTube channel. Um, As far as the basketball stuff goes, though, the first thing I got in the mail this week was a pair of 2021 WNBA Prism Blasters. And I mentioned that, um, that these were coming last week during my conversation with Steve. I've talked about it a little before on the show, but... One of my goals this summer was to watch more WNBA and learn more about WNBA cards in the process. And even though my Indiana Fever were downright awful this year, I've really enjoyed what I've seen so far. And I'm ready for the playoffs, which start the day that this episode airs. So I got these blasters on the Target website for like $30 a piece. And even though I didn't get anything big, I thought there were a great rip at the price. And if you're wondering what I did hit, I got a Crystal Dangerfield Silver Rookie and a Tiffany Mitchell Green for my PC. And there were some other inserts too, but um, I've seen pictures of these in stores priced at $39.99. That's probably a little steep. They are just blasters. They're not mega boxes. But if you think this might be something you're interested in, pull up some breaks on YouTube. Get a feel for the product first. Uh, Overall, I thought these blasters were a fun little break. Okay. The main basketball piece I got in this week wasn't really card-related. It was a game-worn warm-up, and it has a little backstory that goes with it, too. Back in 2012, there were nine teams that wore ABA retro jerseys to help commemorate the 45th anniversary of the ABA. 
Some teams actually had ABA lineage, like the Pacers, and some were just honoring the old clubs. For example, the Timberwolves wore stuff from the Minnesota Muskies, and the Heat wore stuff for the Floridians. But the Heat and the T-Wolves were never affiliated with the ABA squads. As part of this whole initiative, Adidas made these new uh, retro-looking warm-ups that kind of looked like cardigans. And the moment I saw them, I knew I really wanted a Pacers one, but they were never available to the public. And I lost a couple on eBay around that time, and I, you know, I think those were just extra stock, so no players ever wore those copies. Um, and I hadn't seen or really thought much of them since then. Well, last week one of them shows up on eBay, and I got it for like $22 shipped. And they didn't specify a player in the listing, but it's a 3XL, and it had 29 written on the tag. And the only 29 I remember from Pacers history was Jeff Pendergraft. And he was on the squad at that time, so that part of it matches up. Um, now that I have it, though, to be honest, I'm not really sure what to do with it. Because I, I'm not much of a memorabilia guy. It's not worth framing. It's way too big for me to wear. Yes, I did try it on. And uh, by the way, it smells like a wet yak. I had it on in Mrs. Wax Museum, said, you gotta take that thing somewhere. Um, it smelled awful. So... I guess I'll just hang it in the closet and look at it every now and then, uh, which feels weird to me, but that's really more or less what we do with our cards too, right? It's just a cardboard box instead of a closet. So uh, if you're a memorabilia guy and you have a better suggestion, hit me up because I have a few other pieces and I'm not very good at this whole game-worn thing. All right, before I move into today's main segment, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com, click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. This is Slick Leonard. You're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Boom, baby! Okay, so Probstein Auctions took to their Instagram to announce that CEO Rick Probstein was going to interview, quote-unquote, hobby legend Bill Mastro on IG Live. Now, I referenced this conversation on last week's episode, but it hadn't taken place yet by the time I recorded, so... Obviously, it was impossible for me to responsibly weigh in. Um, It has taken place now, and I feel like it deserves some follow-up. So my plan for today is to recap that 40-minute conversation, give a little more info on Bill Mastro, and then close with a few thoughts of my own. And as always, when I recap a conversation or refer to court documents or pull from some other primary source, I encourage you to check those things out for yourself. I can't even begin to tell you how much time I spent reading articles and legal PDFs this past week trying to piece this together. I want it to be fair and objective, but know that we all interpret a text in a little different way, even if it is written in a more tactical style. Okay, so on to this conversation. Let's do the recap first here. Um, After Probstein fumbled around with his camera for a few minutes, the conversation got underway. Um, The pair talked a bit about the response to the initial Instagram announcement 
And Probstein mentioned that he was surprised that 40 or 50 people in the comments hadn't heard of Bill Mastro before, um, to which Bill laughed off and said, you know, that doesn't bother me a bit. And uh, from there, Probstein explained that Mastro was a number one go-to premier auction house. And um, they talked about Mastro's hobby history. They talked a little about the origins of hobby conventions, which, you know, I would have liked to have heard more about that, but... I suppose that info's out there via other sources anyway. Uh, Mastro disclosed that he went to this year's National after having not been in 15 years, which I didn't know that. Um, He mentioned several times just how happy people were to see him there. Um, A little after the 17-minute mark, Probstein asked uh, asked for Mastro's thoughts about eBay suspending PWCC's account for shilling. And um, to Rick's credit, he tried to bring the conversation back to Master Auctions several times. And um, a little before the 19-minute mark, he brought up the fact that Master Auctions had access to seeing what someone's ceiling bid was. So they talked a little bit about that. And from there, they segued into a discussion about Master's reputation, to which Master said he hates the negative publicity for the hobby. Um, Probstein chimed in. And he said, well, we're friends and I judge people based on my personal interactions with them. And then he later added, the person is remorseful. We have a federal judicial system and the person paid their debts to society and people deserve another chance and another opportunity. Um, Continuing that theme, Mastro stated, what I did was wrong. I made a plea agreement. I went away. And you know what? God puts erasers on the end of pencils. I get to live the rest of my life. I've done a lot of good in my life. I don't have to make excuses for the good or the bad I did. I feel good about me. I feel good about the people I deal with. I feel good about the people I have in my life. And then he talks about how a year and a half could have turned him into a horrible person. A year and a half in jail, that is. And he said, I'm the best me I've ever been. I've made mistakes. It was a dumb thing. I didn't need the money. Why did I do it? It was ego. It was all ego. It was ridiculous. I'm not the same guy. Well, then Probstein asked him to address two uh, seemingly unrelated questions at the same time. The first one was about the infamous T206 Wagner card, and Mastro gave a brief story about why he trimmed it. And then the second question was, moving forward, what do you want your role in the industry now? What do you want your role to be in the industry now? And um, even though Mastro talked a little about how he's graded cards and they'd already talked about how he sent hundreds of cards to Probstein, he replied that he didn't want any particular role in the hobby. He followed that up by saying, I'm not even sure if the hobby wants me to have a role in it. And then talking about the conversation as a whole, the last noteworthy thing that was said came from Probstein who said, if anyone's mad, they can be mad at me. They don't have to be mad at you. All right. So that, like I said, that was a 40-minute conversation. So, um, you know, I suggest listening to that yourself, but those were the highlights in my opinion. I, I went through it. Um, those, you know, I stopped it. I took notes along the way. So those were the things that stood out to me. And um, I'll most definitely be coming back to that last quote from Probstein later on. Before I do, though, I'd like to share a little bit more of Bill Mastro's hobby history. Um, Probstein mentioned that you know, they were surprised that 40 or 50 people hadn't really heard of him. They talked about his background a little bit, but I feel like we need to fill in some of the gaps from this conversation. And I'm not trying to drag him through the mud or anything like that, 
but I feel like it's necessary for the sake of context. Um, Okay, so according to his sentencing memorandum, Mastro started collecting at a young age in order to, quote, escape the chaos of his abusive home, end quote. And over time, this turned into a major hobby for him, and he decided to pursue it full-time. He traveled the country buying and selling, and this includes an oversized sheet-cut T206 Hannes Wagner tobacco card that he bought from a New York card shop in the mid-80s for $25,000. He then trimmed it and sold it shortly after for $110,000. And a lot of people suspected this card was trimmed for a long time. In fact, uh, Mastro vehemently denied it for decades. And he finally fessed up to it in court in 2013. That itself was a big enough deal. There were articles written about that that he finally fessed up. And I'm not going to go into detail here, but this card, I'm not just talking about the Wagner, this specific card has been on an incredible journey. This specific copy of the Wagner, I should say, has been on an incredible journey. Um, It's like there's literally a book written about it. It's been owned by Wayne Gretzky. Oh yeah, it was also the very first card graded by PSA. Not as altered, right? It got a PSA 8, which we might have to come back to that later. Uh, Anyway, as Mastro continued to buy and sell some of these high-profile cards, he recognized the potential in auction houses. And he worked his way into that industry and then founded an auction house of his own called Mastro Auctions in 1996. Um, And then the sentencing memorandum states that he launched his first online auction just two years later. Now, that's a pretty big deal because, you know, 1998, the internet was uh, not quite the behemoth that it is now. And even eBay was in its early years and it was really starting to get things going. So for him to have a higher profile auction house and to have it online, that was revolutionary. You know, that was a big deal. Um, And on this, this website, usually there were about three auctions per year. And according to um, the indictment PDF from justice.gov, it said, quote, bidders placed uh, bids online through Mastro Auctions website or by directly communicating with a Mastro Auctions employee, typically by telephone. So uh, these bids were either regular straight bids or ceiling bids, which Probstein referred to in their chat. And that's essentially the equivalent of a max bid on eBay. And some of you uh, are probably very familiar with max bids. And um, now, even though all of the Wagner stuff went down in the 80s, the auction shenanigans supposedly didn't start until around 2001 or 2002. And a lot of what I'm going to paraphrase from uh, going forward from here comes from the plea agreement PDF for former Master Auctions executive Doug Allen, who ended up serving a little over three years in prison himself. Um, I like the way that they laid everything out in their recap. It also matches up quite a bit uh, with the information offered up in an archived article that I saw about the two of them from FBI.gov. So it says that Mastro and his crew, quote, knowingly devised and intended to devise and participated in a scheme and artifice to defraud the customers of Mastro auctions and to obtain money and property by means of materially false and fraudulent pretenses, representations, and promises, and by concealment of material facts. It also says that they, quote, engaged in practices designed to fraudulently inflate prices by bidders, they engaged in practices designed to protect the interest of consigners and sellers, which had the effect of artificially inflating 
the prices paid by some bidders. End quote. Uh, you see, at the auction house, they had access to see who had placed what ceiling bids or max bids. And that's kind of what Probstein referred to in the conversation. Um, and then, now they didn't go into this part, though. And then the auction house itself then placed bids to bump people up to their max bids. And at times, this resulted in the auction house accidentally winning an auction or a shill bidder winning an auction that they had no intentions of winning. And this is going to be a, a bit of a lengthy quote here, but I think it's information that's worth sharing. It says, quote, At times, Allen and Mastro ensured that when they placed a shill bid, and that shill bid was the highest bid at the end of the auction, that item would not be purchased by the shill bidder. Instead, Allen and Mastro sometimes canceled or caused the cancellation of the sale of the item. As a result, Allen and Mastro had an advantage over legitimate bidders because they knew that if their shill bid was the winning bid on an item, the sale would be canceled. This allowed defendant Allen and Mastro to bid in the auctions without risk and at the same time inflate the bid price, the seller's fees, and buyer's premium. Following the cancellation of a sale, defendant Allen instructed co-schemer A and other auction house employees to reconcile invoices and the shipment of items with canceled sales. End quote. Um, now, even though Mastro Auctions was sold to a private group in 2004, Mastro still worked for them and continued to be an active participant in this rampant fraud. Another major example was outlined in the Doug Allen plea agreement PDF that I've been reading from. It says, quote, beginning in late 2007 and continuing until at least late 2008, Mastro placed ceiling bids using shill accounts on several hundred items several hundred items, owned by historical collectibles, items that the auction house effectively already owned. Mastro placed ceiling bids on historical collectibles items to stimulate bidding on those items, to protect the auction house's investment in the items, and to ensure that the items were not sold for a perceived undesirable price. At the time those ceiling bids were placed, legitimate auction bidders would be unaware that it was Mastro, and not other legitimate bidders who was bidding against them. Uh, now, I should also add, in addition to all that, fraud didn't stop with shill bidding. In 2003, Master Auctions sold a batch of Elvis Presley's hair. Yeah, Elvis's hair. And uh, the winners sent it off for DNA testing, and the results revealed that it came from three or four different people. So, sellers asked for a refund and got it. They got a little bit of extra too, a little bit of extra money too, but um, they had to keep quiet about the DNA testing. Why? Well, because the auction house then resold the hair. It didn't disclose that same DNA testing. Similarly, they sold a trophy ball that was supposed to be from the late 1800s. Um, those were like baseballs that were painted and you know they had some significance. Well, the only problem was it was sent to a lab and it had paint on it that was from the post-World War II era. Remember, this was supposed to be from the late 1800s. Um, well, then they sold that ball again in 2006, and they left that info out. You know, oops. Well, um, all of this stuff could only go on for so long before someone became suspicious or someone involved spilled the beans. And in 2006, um, you know, their name was also, Master Auctions was also thrown in with a political scandal of some sort. Whether they were a part of it or not, they were thrown into it. So 
uh, their name was getting out there in different capacities. And um, then in 2000, July of 2007, a New York Daily News article revealed that the Chicago division of the FBI was investigating Mastro auctions for shill bidding. And in order to do so, they were reaching out to other hobby executives. And one of them in the article even noted that he gave them the name of a consigner who bid on his own items via Mastro auctions. Now, at the time, Mastro executive Doug Allen, who I also mentioned earlier, he said he wasn't aware of the investigation. But by 2008, it really wasn't much of a secret anymore, and it definitely wasn't a secret come the National. Yes, the National, the convention, right? The one that we all talked about here recently. Well, in 2008, the FBI showed up and they handed out a number of subpoenas to a number of hobby executives. Um, There was a funny line when I was going through articles from an unnamed source in the New York Daily News who said, I think they came to the National because they knew everybody would be here all under one roof. It's like shooting ducks in a barrel. So um, over that next month, then a, a grand jury brought a number of people in to testify. Things were definitely heating up. Uh, people were aware that something was going on. And, and keep in mind, this was around the same time as a major recession. So a lot of things were going on financially. And Mastro Auctions officially closed its doors amid that FBI investigation in March of 2009. Long story short, a lot of people owed a lot of people some money. And things get kind of messy and some other familiar faces in the hobby make appearances I don't want to bring all of them in right now because I want to focus mainly on Mastro and his history still. So, um, And that story, by the way, is far from over, so I'm going to keep going here. I'm not going to pretend that I'm any sort of legal expert, but I just want to provide a general timeline. So the grand jury put out their charges in February of 2011. There's an FBI article that talks about how Mastro and some of his former associates were indicted on fraud charges in July of 2012. Um, Once those have been filed, you know, this is finally becoming a legitimate criminal case. There was a trial in 2013, and this is where Mastro finally admitted to trimming the Wagner, like I mentioned earlier. And uh, it looks like things bounce back and forth for a while, as they usually do in the legal system. Uh, I know at one point he paid a massive fine of $250,000. And then finally, in August of 2015, he was sentenced to 20 months in prison. So he he went to jail, Um, and he started that sentence in late November and was eventually released a little early in May of 2017. So he didn't serve the whole 20 months, but he served most of it. He served 18 months. So um, there are a few quotes I want to read from that sentencing, though, coming from uh, U.S. District Judge Ronald Guzman. Uh, Guzman. And he he didn't mince words when it came to the situation at hand and and the uh, subsequent consequences. He called the online marketplace the quote-unquote wild west of commerce, and he said a sentence of probation would utterly fail to provide deterrence to other auctioneers and collectors. Um, Now, he did acknowledge Mastro's charity work, which became a a big part of the argument in lessening his time, and uh, he said, well, at the same time, and I mean literally at the same time as that charity work, he has lied he has cheated, and he has defrauded on a massive scale. The defendant presents two inherently different personalities. And finally, the judge added, Unfortunately, we're not talking about a mistake. We're talking about persistent, intentional, sophisticated fraud, 
even in the face of warnings of others and the knowledge he was being investigated, he persisted, end quote. Um, and that's something that I want to emphasize as I head into some of my final thoughts here. This was not a one-time little incident. It wasn't like, you know, oops, we accidentally shilled you, right? It was long, it was drawn out, it was deliberate, and it was destructive. Both in the financial sense, you know, cost a lot of people a lot of money, but it also eroded the overall trust in the hobby and online marketplaces. Um, and as you guys know, those are crucial for what we do. We need them in the hobby ecosystem. Now, on the other hand, as with all prisoners, yes, Mastro deserves the right to be rehabilitated and reintegrated into society. If a prisoner has served his or her time, they have that right. Mastro served his time. He wants to be part of this great hobby again. Well, apparently he's even grading with PSA. He has that right as long as PSA extends it to him, which quite frankly, I'm surprised they do. Um, you know, I probably shouldn't be, but um, they jump-started their business by slabbing an incredibly high-profile card that Mastro altered. It's not a good look for them, and it's made them the subject of a lot of public scrutiny. But, you know, whatever, that's their choice. Um, and then no one can stop him from collecting. And it appears as if that's what he's been quietly doing. He buys and sells cards. By all means, he should be allowed to do so as an individual. If you don't want to buy from him, you don't have to. You know, I'm not. Well, at least knowingly, I should say, because he did say he sold uh, hundreds of items through Probstein. So, you know, you don't know. You might actually be buying something that's being sold by Mastro. Um behind a shielded identity uh, through a consigner that's had some issues before. Um, so I'll say, um, you know, I'm not knowingly buying. I guess I can say that. I mean, w would you trust your, uh, would you trust Michael Vick to watch your pets over the weekend? You know, he might've served his time. In fact, he, he served more time than Mastro. Um, he might've paid a price, right? Now, if it's me, I know my precious cats, Man uh, Reggie and Manny, they deserve better than that. You weigh the facts and you do what you want. You know, they're your pets. Or in this case, they're your dollars. Um, now, at the end of the day, though, this interview was probably not necessary to rehabilitate him into the hobby. And no one, I mean no one, was asking for it. It came completely out of the blue. Were there parts of it that I found interesting? Sure. Was it dangerous to throw this out there when there are so many new people in the hobby that don't know the history? Absolutely. If it served any good, it's only going to be because more responsible people came behind them and tidied things up. Because they basically left us with Probstein saying, well, if anyone's mad, they can be mad at me. They don't have to be mad at you. You being Mastro here. Um, so since I have his permission, I am mad at Rick for doing this, and I'm going to take a few minutes to tell you why. I know that the pair joked about how people are, you know, really tough behind the keyboard. That was part of their conversation, too. I don't know if that includes microphones, too. Maybe it does, but uh, to be fair, they've both done their fair share of damage behind a keyboard as well. Okay, so let's even the playing field here. So why am I upset about all of this? Uh, a couple of things. Number one, we have one of the largest, if not the largest, consigner and seller on eBay inviting Mastro on and calling him a hobby legend. And it's not like Mastro asked for that title. 
No, once again, this was Probstein being careless. Mastro spent the better part of a decade willingly committing fraud. Now, I can accept the fact that everyone deserves a second chance, but they don't deserve to be heralded as a legend in the process. He defiled our hobby. We don't call Bernie Madoff a finance legend. Why should this case be any different? And quite frankly, I've seen the phrase hobby legend thrown around so much on social media lately that it's been stripped of all meaning, which is a real shame. While we don't have to have uh, a definitive number of hobby legends, there are a lot of people out there that truly deserve the recognition. And at the same time, there are those who don't. Like auction house owners that shaved cards. An Instagram influencer that likely just started shaving their faces. Both of them, not hobby legends. And number two, for whatever reason, Probstein seems interested in bringing his old friend back into the public eye. And even though Mastro went to the National, it doesn't seem like he's trying to have any sort of major public presence. It's not like he made a big announcement online or on social media saying, hey, come meet me, I'm going to be at the National. There were a lot of people there. I was there. I didn't see him. I certainly didn't know to look for him there either, though. Um, So what was the need to bring him out into the open again? And without legitimate context, what purpose does that serve? And on top of that, Rick was pretty fixated on finding out, quote-unquote, what do you want your role to be in the industry now? It's funny to me that he kind of casually lumped the Wagner question in there at the same time. Um, And Mastro explicitly said to him, I don't want any particular role in the hobby. I was encouraged by Mastro's directness. But I felt like Probstein's handling of of the question itself was kind of careless. You see, earlier in the conversation, Probstein went on and on about the merits of the federal judicial system. Now, he omitted the fact that within that same system, Mastro and his lawyers promised to leave the industry if it could reduce his sentence. Let me say that again. They used his own commitment that he would not be involved in the industry again as leverage to try and shorten his prison sentence. So, what do you want your role in the industry to be is probably not an appropriate question. Why would you put your friend in a vulnerable spot like that? You know he can't have any formal business involvement. If anything, a good friend would help keep their friend accountable. Now, I'm going to close today by uh, taking another quote from this conversation and applying the same logic here. When they were talking about Master's reputation, Rick said, I judge people based on my personal interactions with them. Now, I've heard a lot of bad things about Probstein and his business, but to be fair, I can only go off my personal interactions with him over the years. Like the time I was shill bid to the moon on a Reggie Miller patch that, uh, you know, a zero feedback bidder was bidding up and Rick did nothing about it. Or the time I bought an optic gold that had a huge thumbnail sized dent in it wasn't visible in the auction picture. Um, I returned it, and he listed it again without citing the damage. Right, so I have that experience too. Or the time a week or so ago that he shipped me a $40 card in just a penny sleeve, and it showed up with a big scratch on it. Now, I don't think in any one of those instances that Probstein was aiming to harm me or upset me. He wouldn't know me from Adam. I'm a nobody. But at the very least, it shows that he can be very careless. There's a bit of a track record. So, I feel like this IG Live conversation was 
pretty much on brand for him. It was characterized by that same consistent level of carelessness. Now, I definitely don't think he meant to harm anyone, but it left other people to try and clean up the mess. And I hope I've done a sufficient job of doing that for you today. That's all for today's episode. Maybe there was something I said that resonated with you. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast. I'm also on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. <laughs>